It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 289 for April 22nd, 2012. This week, Toward the Future with my Android tablet in hand. What are you? An expert, a king, a butterfly, or a maestro? Ever wonder how spam filters work and why you should wonder? In short circuits, Oracle takes on Google in court, using old lenses on your new digital camera. And have you used the terms Sony and Leading Edge in the same sentence recently? Back in January, when I bought an Android tablet, I promised an update after I had used it for a while. Well, it's been three months since I bought the Asus Transformer, and I've developed an intense love-hate relationship with the tablet, and some disturbing suspicions about the abilities of Asus technical support. Despite the problems and questions, I'm still somewhat pleased with the tablet's capabilities, even though I have returned it to Asus for service. There's a lot to like, and there's some to dislike. For example, Instant On is great. There's no two-minute or more wait while the computer boots, or even 30 seconds while it wakes from sleep mode. But the tablet frequently crashes when it's sleeping, so the instant startup time is more like five minutes. I like that there are lots of applications available for Android tablets. One of my favorite time wasters, in fact, is StumbleUpon. But I dislike the fact that some of the applications crash way too often. StumbleUpon simply exits with no warning and no recovery. Usually this happens just as a particularly interesting site appears on the screen. And following the crash, there's no way to get back to the site that looked interesting. I like the fact that Asus makes a docking station for the Transformer 101. Actually, it's just a keyboard, an extra battery, and a USB port. Hardly what I would think of as a docking station, but that's what they call it. What I dislike is that it costs far too much. It can't be used with the tablet holder I bought and it shortens the battery life instead of extending it. I can attach the docking station and find that both the internal and external batteries are exhausted after less than two hours. The whole point of adding the docking station is extending the device's battery life from about two hours to eight or more. This is the primary reason I've returned the tablet and the docking station to Asus for service. And I dislike the fact that Asus is headquartered in Taiwan. Well, actually, I don't so much dislike that. They can be headquartered wherever they want, but that's where their support division is located. And unfortunately, the support employees are not particularly proficient in English. This creates communications problems, and although the ASUS tech support employees are unfailingly polite, even when I am not, the result isn't really satisfactory. If ASUS wants to be a player in the U.S. marketplace, then the company should outsource its U.S. support to the United States. So, Apple or Android, which is it? I don't like Apple's end-to-end control philosophy. That's the philosophy Steve Jobs created. This is the philosophy that says users don't need to know what's inside and shouldn't be able to modify it. The Apple II was the last device that Jobs made that could be modified by users. Although I don't like that philosophy, it has allowed Apple to create closed system devices that work exactly as designed. 
In the post-Jobs era, that's not likely to change. Apple's tablets are superior in many ways to the polyglot world of the Android devices, just as Apple computers are more predictable than systems built by thousands of companies who build computers running Windows. What this says is that I would probably be happier with an Apple iPad than with an Android tablet, but that's probably not going to happen because I value the more open Android system. That opinion is subject to change when Asus someday returns my repaired or replaced Transformer tablet. After approximately a week, the repair or replacement was complete. I won't receive the repaired unit until after this week's program has gone to press, been put to bed, or transcribed, depending on your mode and reference point. So stay tuned, and I'll let you know what happened. What are you? An efficiency expert, a content king, social butterfly, or a connected maestro? According to IBM, you probably fit into one of those categories. The conclusions of an IBM study were released at this year's National Association of Broadcasters convention, and it can't have done too much to help broadcast owners sleep better at night. IBM surveyed 3,800 consumers in the United States, China, France, Germany, Japan, and the United Kingdom, and also met with global representatives in broadcasting, publishing, media service agencies, and telecommunication providers. Probably to the surprise of some, the results were similar in most countries, and yes, that includes consumers in China. For example, when an important event occurs, more than 50% of survey participants in both the U.S. and China said that they first turn to online sources, not to broadcast media. IBM says that four distinct new digital personalities are emerging and that media companies must adapt to deliver personalized experiences. Broadcast can't do that easily, neither can print, if at all. Web-based services can, and many already do. The Beyond Digital study shows a rapidly changing audience that is quickly adopting a wide range of digital devices, and surprise, they're not all 20-somethings. For example, 65% of respondents aged 55 to 64 report surfing the web and texting with friends while watching TV. How about the over 65 crowd? Nearly half, 49% that is, use the web. 30% use some sort of device for texting. If you widen the age range to include users from 18 through 64, 82% own at least one digital device with internet access. How many do you own? Something as basic as an iPod Touch has Wi-Fi built in, so do most electronic readers, tablets of course, and notebook computers. And just about any cell phone you buy now will be able to send and receive text messages. The IBM study identified four general types of users, and you might find the names, descriptions, and distinctions interesting. Here's how IBM describes them. Efficiency experts. With 41% in this category, these respondents use digital devices and services to simplify day-to-day -day activities. Efficiency experts send emails rather than letters, use Facebook to communicate with others, access the Internet via mobile phones, and shop online. Content Kings. 
These are generally male consumers who frequently play online games, download movies and music, and watch TV online. This audience represents 9% of the global sample. Social Butterflies They place emphasis on social interaction, require instant access to friends regardless of time or place. 15% of consumers surveyed report they frequently maintain and update social networking sites, add labels or tags to online photos, and view videos from other users. And the connected maestros. 35% of those surveyed take a more advanced approach to media consumption by using mobile devices and smartphone applications to access games, music, and video, or to check news, weather, sports, and other online content. So, what does all this mean? According to study co-author Saul Berman, IBM's global strategy consulting leader, media companies need to engage with consumers based on their digital personalities if they're going to maintain a sustainable and connected relationship. Because what we now call the old media can't do this, they need to use the new media to provide services that consumers want. Berman says that the expanded use of digital devices will allow print and broadcast operations to extend or redefine the customer experience by providing near real-time information. Future success is dependent, he says, upon successfully executing on insights based on this data to reach the right consumer at the right time and place using the right tools. The old media have had trouble monetizing online services, and because most consumers seem to consider it anathema to actually pay for content, monetizing the service is essential. Journalists don't work for free, although many of them would if they didn't need to provide food and shelter for their families. The study points out the obvious. The need for payment option flexibility, even for the same set of consumers, is apparent by looking at those most active in adopting the new devices. This group's preferred mode of payment is to watch a movie on a website by viewing advertising included in the movie. 39% of this segment chose the, that particular option. But they prefer to see movies on a tablet by purchasing a subscription. 36% selected that. And if they're watching movies on a smartphone, they'd prefer to pay for each time they view a movie. There again, 36% chose that. IBM has been performing this kind of research for the past four years. The surveys are conducted by the Institute of Business Value. The reports have all focused on the transition from physical to digital distribution of information and the impact this transformation has on consumers, the media, and the entertainment industry. Spam filters come in all kinds of flavors, and you'll find them in many locations. Some internet service providers perform some spam filtering that identifies and deletes messages that are positively identified as spam. Your email program may have a built-in spam filter, and you may also use a separate application or a plug-in for your email program. Most email clients have user-defined filtering mechanisms that can send individual messages to specific mailboxes, depending on the sender, the recipient, or something in the subject line, body text, or message headers. The header filters are the most sophisticated. It's possible to have a process that detects forged headers, and any message with a forged header is guaranteed to be spam. 
The reverse isn't true, though. A message without a forged header is not guaranteed to be good. Because many spammers forge information in the headers, this test can eliminate a lot of junk. At the other end of the spectrum are filters that drop all messages that are in a language other than yours. If you are monolingual and never expect to receive any legitimate messages from someone whose native language isn't English, you can set a filter like that. Among the most involved filters are those that try to evaluate the contents of the message. Virtually all filters like these will occasionally filter messages you want, so you do need to counter them with a whitelist that explicitly allows messages from certain senders or domains. One of the better-known systems that look at the message content is called Spam Assassin. These kinds of systems contain many rules that try to differentiate between valid messages and just junk. Lots of capital letters, particularly if they include words such as click here, free, or buy now, will trigger a response. The originating IP address may be compared to a real-time blacklist of IP addresses from which spam has recently originated. For example, some of Spam Assassin's rules apply positive numbers, higher numbers mean more spammy, and negative numbers, indicating that the message is less likely to be spam. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see an example of an email header with the points as assigned by Spam Assassin. The message on the website received no negative points and 11.1 positive points. I set Spam Assassin to consider any message with more than five points to be spam. The message in question was for generic Viagra, which of course doesn't exist. It was considered suspicious because the originating IP address was in a block list. A referenced web address was in three block lists and was also a new domain name. The body of the message talked about free things, and the message came from a network that has no reverse DNS capability. Some people use challenge response filters that require any new sender to reply to a challenge message. This kind of filtering is 100% effective at filtering spam, but it's also a fairly effective way to annoy people who are trying to reach you. Challenge response systems are okay for individuals. They should never, ever be used by a business. MailChimp, which is the mailing service that TechBiter Worldwide uses, lists some key points that are likely to cause a filter to reject a message. Here are some of them. Spammy phrases like, click here, or once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Going crazy with exclamation points. Using all caps, particularly in the subject. Coloring the fonts bright red or green. Or creating an HTML email that's nothing but one big image with little or no text. Well, since spam filters can't read images, they assume that you're a spammer that's trying to trick them. Even something as seemingly innocuous as the word test in the subject line. Agencies run into this all the time when they send drafts to clients for approval. Sending a test to multiple recipients within the same company, the company's email firewall might assume it's a spam attack and delete all the messages. Or designing HTML email in Microsoft Word and exporting the code to HTML. The code is sloppy and spam filters absolutely hate it. You know, there should be an easier way to deal with spam, and in fact there are, but most of them involve some trade-offs in privacy. Still, something needs to be done about the junk. Internet service providers already have in place systems that eliminate much of the known spam. For example, the sender of one million identical messages is clearly a spammer. 80% or more of all email messages sent are spam. And if you want your messages to survive all of the spam filtering mechanisms out there, 
it's important that your messages don't look like spam. short circuits, it's Oracle versus Google in court. The judge in the trial that pits Oracle against Google was critical of Google CEO Larry Page's testimony this week. Page said that Google didn't purchase a license to use the Java software owned by Oracle because it didn't need one. Oracle obtained the rights to Java when the company acquired Sun Microsystems, and Google is accused of using the technology in developing its Android operating system. Oracle CEO Larry Allison was also on the witness stand this week in U.S. District Court in San Francisco. After Page responded to several questions by saying that he didn't know the answer or didn't recall the circumstances he was being asked about, Judge William Alsop criticized the Google CEO for his apparent lack of knowledge or his unwillingness to tell what he knew. Page said that Google could have developed Android faster and at a lower cost, if it had used Sun's Java technology, but he said Google developed the operating system on its own. Oracle sued Google and is asking for almost $1 billion for what it terms violation of Java copyrights and patents. Oracle's attorneys displayed a memo one Google executive sent to Page suggesting licensing Java technology from Sun Microsystems, the company that developed Java. Oracle acquired Sun in 2010. Page's response was that negotiations with Sun ended and that the code for Android's operating system contains no code that needed to be licensed from Sun or Oracle. Google attorneys also showed the jury a video in which Oracle CEO Larry Ellison said that nobody owns Java and that it's available for anyone to use. The trial continues. Did you know you can stick an old lens on your new digital camera and that it'll work? Alright, well it's really not quite that simple. But it will work if you're willing to spend a few dollars for a converter and put up with some significant shortcomings. How significant? Well, like no autofocus, no auto exposure, no vibration reduction if we're speaking Nikon terms or image stabilization in Canon's terms. In other words, much of what you prize in your new digital single-lens reflex camera. But some of those old Nikon and Canon lenses are high quality, and if you don't need the speed that the new technologies afford, they might be useful extensions. And besides that, you can often buy these old lenses cheaply. Or you might still have some that you used to use with your film camera. In that case, they're essentially free. In some cases, the old lenses can be mounted on the new DSLRs without a special mount, and that makes them even more attractive. But keep the shortcomings in mind. 
you'll have to set the camera to full manual operation, manually stop down the lens to check the exposure, manually focus, and dispense with all of the anti-blur technologies that modern lenses come with. If you have some old Canon, Nikon, or Pentax lenses, you'll find sources online that'll help you determine whether the lens you own will work on your new camera, and if so, whether you'll need an adapter to make everything work together. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find some links to resources that'll give you some more information. Remember when Sony meant leading edge? I was talking with a friend the other day and we wandered onto the topic of Sony. Whatever became of Sony? The company defined mobile music with the Walkman. Then Apple came along with the iPod and nobody wanted the old technology. Sony tried to compete with its MD disc technology, which is a great format for field recording, or was, but it never caught on among the general public. And now most sound recordings are made on solid state devices. TechBiter Worldwide originates each week on a handheld digital recorder. And it's not made by Sony. Sony, it seems, has lost its way. As long as 10 years ago, maybe more, Sony was a company that was essentially at war with itself. The recording and movie divisions filed suits against individuals for copyright violations, while the hardware division pumped out CD and DVD burners that enabled illegal copying of Sony materials. Just last week, Sony announced that the fiscal year would end with losses. Actually, that announcement was made months ago. The more recent announcement, the one made last week, was to clarify things a bit. The year will end with losses that are even greater than what Sony had expected, nearly $6.5 billion. And Sony hasn't reported a profit since 2008. In the past 10 years, nearly everything has gone digital or is available on the Internet. And Sony seems to have been largely unaware of the changes that were happening all around it. Sony makes monitors, but most people buy monitors made by Samsung or NEC or ViewSonic. Sony makes televisions, but Samsung sells more. In fact, Samsung, the Korean company, seems to have out-Sonied Sony, having gone from a second-tier operation to a premier brand, as Sony was sinking. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.